this week's talk centers, and I'm going to get it, the elephant out of the room straight away, it centers on the subject of the consummation of marriage, the idea of sex. Time magazine in 2004, and I've borrowed this quote, I've heard a few um, preachers use this quote when they're speaking about this passage as a weigh-in, as an intro. Uh, this is a, a quote from Time magazine. Of all the splendidly ridiculous, trans trans transcendental, fulfilling things humans do, it is sex that most confounds understanding. What in the world are we doing? Why are we so consumed by it? The impulse to procreate may lie at the heart of sex, but bursting from our sexual center is a whole spate of other things. Art, song, romance, obsession, rapture, sorrow, companionship, love, even violence and criminality. Why should this be so? Did nature simply overload us in the mating department? Or is there something smarter, subtler at work, some larger interplay amongst sexuality, life, and what it means to be human? What is it that we are doing? Why are we so consumed by it? There are, probably more if you're younger, but not actually hitting all of us, there are so many voices instructing us about what sex is all about at the moment, particularly now, probably more than at any other point in human history. There are so many different stories about what sex is about. Probably the prevailing one, or a prevailing one, a loud voice, would be given that it's just about procreation, given that it's just about repeating your gene pool, now that we've got our heads around and a handle on contraception, surely it's just about personal pleasure. It's a very loud voice in our ears. In other words, and I think this is evidenced if you spend long enough scrolling through your social media, like I do, if you flick through the videos long enough, or you flick through the channels long enough, or you stop and listen to some of the stuff that's, that we sing and that we hear, sex today, prevailing view, a prevailing view, means nothing. It's devoid of meaning. It's about personal gratification. And yet, we know don't we? I think, I know, we feel, we look around us, we give ourselves away, we hope so much, we invest so much in it, it means something, is the case that I'm going to make. One of the big ways that God communicates to us is through the fidelity or the infidelity of his people. One of the big themes of the storyline of the Bible, God's voice to humanity, is the fidelity 
or the infidelity of his people. So in Genesis, he told Adam and Eve to do what? To go and be fruitful. Not just have fun, although I'm sure that's part of the story, but create other humans, populate the earth in my image. Fidelity, infidelity. The heart of the law, those long law books with all those rules in, is almost the heart of it. Jesus points this out. It's almost a romantic notion. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And the prophets, as they see the people struggle to do this, cry out, and they call God's people an adulterous bride. And in the New Testament, God's message to us is that he loves us. More than that, he wants relationship with us. More than that, he wants us to dress ourselves like a perfect bride and increasingly beautify ourselves. There's a romantic note, a fidelity, infidelity story that runs right the way through the Bible. And in the Song of Songs, probably more viscerally and visually than any other point, we see all of this come together. And the text that we're looking at now, whew, chapter 5, verse 1, all of the scholars that I read describe it as the center of the book. And at the center of the book, and it's no coincidence that it's the center of the book, chapter 5, verse 1, you spread it out either way, right in the middle is the consummation of the marriage. And the fallout from the book, either side of that, are all of the emotions and the thoughts and the feelings and the expressions and the hurts and the anguish and the hopes and the dreams of these two people around this consummation of the marriage. God speaks to us. Blown away last week listening to a sermon. I was sat there in the front of the church and Paul, who self-describes, self-identifies, you might even use the language um, today, as somebody who loves the accuracy and the intelligence and the logic of the Bible. And that's what really drives him. And also he hinted at the way that he loves the histori historicity of the Bible. And he said, as we read the Song of Songs, it reminds us, that though God does speak to us in those ways, he speaks to us, he speaks into us through his word. We see that because, of the, because the Song of Songs exists. He speaks to our deepest desires. It's one of his ways of reaching out to the lost. Our most intimate, deepest desires, our longings, our hopes, our struggles, our mess-ups, our errors, our total confusion. He speaks to us in all of this. So just through this passage, I want us to think about two ways that God uh, speaks on us. I don't know if we could go back at the start of the, start of the text. He speaks to us through our need to feel loved. Um, there's a film out. film out was last year. It's called... Good luck, Leo Grand. I'm pretty much hoping that none of you have seen it, if I'm really honest. Don't Google it now, whatever you do. Um, 
but I was watching Emma Thompson, who is never normally in anything bad, um, interviewed about it. So the film uh, Good Luck Leo Grand is about a widow who employs an escort to find meaning and hope and satisfaction again. And in the interview, she describes the pain and the anguish from doing a scene that confronted her with her own imperfect body in a mirror, knowing that the guy playing against her needed to fancy her for the film to work. Just the pain of that moment. She spoke so awkwardly and struggled to eloquate the difficulty that it was for her to play this scene. Now, it points to a few things. I'm sure we all have these problems. So we would all have that concern if we were faced with needing to act out in that way. But it brought to mind a huge need we all have. Huge need that we all have. A huge hope that we all have. Will someone desire me and love me when they've seen all there is to see of me? That might well be physically... But worse than that, if you're me, character, pride, personality, one of our big hopes as human beings is that somebody can see the bottom of us, see us at our absolute worst, see the pits of us, and still want to be with us, still love us, still desire us. We have a moment not unlike the Emma Thompson moment in front of us on this text. It is a moment of exposure and vulnerability. I've described it in my notes as a man looking a woman up and down moment, that horrible thing that we men end up doing. But this isn't really like that. This is not really, it is a man looking a woman up and down moment. It's hard to describe verses one through to six as anything other than that. But the first thing I would say about that, this, is that it's not a sleazy looking up and down moment if you can conceive of such a thing. This is their wedding night. We know that because if you want to do the research, the end of chapter three, Solomon rocks up. Whether it's Solomon or not, we're not quite sure, but he rocks up, there's this big procession, and the last verse says this was their wedding night. It's not that hard to figure out. This was their wedding night. And they had waited this wisdom that runs right throughout the book, do not awaken love until it so desires. This is not a sleazy moment. It's a mutual moment. You read through the book, it's not just the guy that will look at the girl. The girl will look at the guy. I did a bit of searching around this. It's a bit of a ritual in ancient times. There's a name for it. Um, it's W-A-S-F if you want to Google what that is. It's, it's a ritual in the marriage. The couple having waited for each other, would look each other up and down and make an assessment. It is, and it's really, hard to, it's really hard to conceive of this in our kind of sex-soaked, everybody gets to see everything world. This, because it sounds a little bit like that. This is a beautiful, intimate, like gorgeous, stunning, sacred moment that we get to see these two people have. And he sees her Verse 1, in this moment, in the looking up and down, this is a beautiful bit of text. 
He sees her as beautiful. The first word, how beautiful you are, my darling. In other translations, it says, behold. It's a bit, it reads to me like it's a wow. Wow, and she stood before him, not wearing a, a whole lot, probably a, just some sort of veil. And he's like, wow. And then we drift into the craziness a little bit. The compliments of another time. But listen, just read through these. These are beautiful. Oh, how beautiful, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes are like doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. Doesn't sound immediately beautiful. But if you can imagine, and I think this is what he's getting at, he's just saying, if you can imagine the, the shepherd who loves the sheep, the sheep are coming down the hill, they're dark. Is it sheep? Goats, isn't it? can't remember what it is. Goats. The goats, because I was talking about sheep. The goats were dark. They were dark. And they were coming down the hill. And it's this idea of hair, jet black hair, cascading over the shoulders. So he's like, oh my word, are you kidding? She's beautiful. Then he goes on to describe her teeth. And he goes with sheep. Nowadays, we'd probably, there's a, probably a whole raft of things that we would choose above sheep. But he goes with sheep, just sheared. And what he's saying here is, they're white, which is great. We know that now, don't we? Because we're all chasing after white teeth. And I have a bit of a problem. I'll only smile so far because I have a good few missing at either side. I don't have what this woman had and what would have been stunning in these times was symmetrical teeth. And he looks at her and he says, oh, you are beautiful. And then he continues to go down. But because, because I've got brains, I'm not going to go any further down with the descriptions. Because I just can't handle that kind of level of embarrassment. Not today, anyway. But suffice to say, he lists seven as he makes his way down. And he rounds off at verse seven. Seven things. It's not an accident that he lists seven things. He's saying... This woman is perfect. See what it says in verse 7? She's all together beautiful. There is no flaw in you. So what do we take from this first little bit? Do we just say great? Beautiful people can have the security of knowing that a good person will like them. Great, if you're even, maybe we can skip it on a bit, we could say, if you're a good person, then another kind of good person will like you. Is that what we're trying to say here? Is that what the text is saying to us? Here's the thing. What can you remember from chapter one? Is she that beautiful? Remember what she said of herself? I'm darkened by the sun. Don't look at me. I'm just a lily of the field. I'm just ordinary. What makes this woman beautiful? The clue is in the most repeated word of chapter 4 and chapter 5. My uh, study books tell me this is the most um, condensed, no, most repeated word in a, in a chapter in the Old Testament. And in chapter 5, verse 1, the most repeated word in any verse in the Old Testament. And the word is my. Why is she beautiful because she's his. It's not because of how she looks 
or her teeth, whether they're all there or not, or her hair, whatever that looks like, it's because she's his. I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. She's beautiful because of their relationship with each other. God loves us. This should just blow us away for a second. It kind of blows me away, and I kind of go, do I really believe this? Can I really believe this? God loves us not because we look good, or because we can be good, or because we are good. He loves us because we're his. Uh, some of uh, our congregation, our tribe, our gang are blessed enough to have little tots at the moment, tiny little tots and babies. It's so awesome to see all the little tots in church. We're so blessed as a church, we should be so thankful. But for those parents of these babies, who, I've got to tell you, if, you, if you're somebody who's not had children, or maybe you're you know, thinking about that, or maybe you're like me and it just all seems like a bit of a daze now, you can't really remember what happened they poo all the time. All the time. They just poo all the time. They scream all the time. Scream, you know, all the time. Conversationally, rubbish. They bring nothing. It's inaudible nonsense. It's just screams. And yet, what do we say when we look down at our gorgeous kiddies with their crazy wafty hair and their chubby cheeks and everything else? We look at them and we go, oh, they're beautiful. Why do we say they're beautiful? Because I'm not sure, not sure they're always beautiful. They poo and cry and we and they, everything else. We say that they're beautiful, why? Because they are ours. We love them because they are ours. 1 John 3 verse 1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Why does God love us? Can, can we even handle that? Because we are his. This, this, is what really, this is what makes what we've got, if, you are, if you're a Christian, if this, is something, if this is a story that rings true for you, this is what makes this really, really special, honestly. This is what makes this so sacred and worth cherishing. We, as people, long for someone to look at us, see the worst of us, and still find us desirable, still tell us we're beautiful. And as a culture, we ache because of this pressure. We're trying to look like something that we're not all the time. We're trying to be something that we're not all the time. Try and marry the wrong person for this reason all of the time. And because of the way faith in Jesus changes us from people who don't belong to God to people who do belong to him. God is able to see the pits of us, to see the worst bits of us, and still love us. That's the gospel. Second and last thing that we see in the text is it points to how perfect things could be. This, is, this was my, the bit before, the rude bit, it is a rude bit, is my favorite bit of Solomon so far, Song of Songs so far. Verses 8 through to 11, I'll read them out. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the crest of Amarna, from the top of Sinir, the summit of Hermon, from the lion's dens and the mountain haunts of the leopards. You have stolen my heart. I think we sang a line like that just now. 
My sister, my bride, you have stolen my heart with one glance from your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and your fragrance and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. He is what you would call madly in love. I don't really know the origin of that expression, madly in love, but my guess is it's where you lose track of logic and your senses. Do you see what he says to her? Verse 8, let's run away together. That's what love is, isn't it? When it stops really making sense. You see what he's saying to her? Let's just run off. It'll be all right. Just me and you against the whole world. Why? Because we love each other. We don't have to think about it. We don't have to have a grander plan than that. Have you ever talked to somebody in those terms? Let's just go together, me and you, because that will be enough. Verse 9. One look from her eyes has got him completely mesmerized. One look. That's not reasonable, is it? One look. You need to do some more research, don't you, to find out if it's true love? No. He looks at her once and he goes, yes. It's not reasonable, that. He's intoxicated with her. Verse 11, he can't stop. He can't be any more expressive. She's totally blown him away. We know that it's true love when we lose our reason, I think. We sing a song here at Christchurch, and one of the lines in it I always have a bit of a problem with. I don't know if you have a problem with it too. The line that I have a struggle with goes, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. And I sing it, and I think, as I'm singing it, really? Can God be reckless? He can't be reckless. How can an all-knowing God be reckless? How can a God who knows everything ever be reckless? And I'm sure he's not Reckless, and I still have a bit of a problem with that line. And yet when I read about God's love shown to us in Jesus, when I read about the way that this groom looks at his bride, the way that he talks about her, when I read about the mind of Christ in Philippians 2, when I read about that, Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even the death of a cross. When I read about that, I think, how else? What other language would you use? When I read about the way that Jesus just abandoned himself to care for other people, when he looked at the cross, which terrified everybody, and went, no, I'm going I'm to go that way. That's where I'm going. I don't know what else to call it. He loves us madly. Us. Madly. And for a second, I just want to stop over the fact that he looks at me and you like that, if you can believe it. Lastly in the story, we reach... We reach the point of consummation, which is not language I use. It's only language I use because I'm preaching. We reach the point of sex in the story. And thankfully, it's poetic language, which 
Sometimes makes it better, sometimes makes it worse. All of the lessons are veiled behind the imagery of a garden. It's like a beautiful bit of text. See a couple of things as he describes this moment. I think the first thing that we see is it's utopic. See verse 13 and 14. Your plants are like an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, with henna and nard. Nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with every kind of incense tree, with myrrh and aloes and the finest spices. I did a bit of horticultural research. Only a little bit. It bore you to tears, but I did a little bit. And apparently you can't put all these things together in a garden. They wouldn't grow together. You'd have to be in the Eden Project, and you'd have to use a few different rooms or something like that. It's eclectic. It's just, as you read through this, what's supposed to happen is you're just blown away by the different smells and sights and sounds. What he's basically saying is this wedding night has blown him away. It's unbelievable, is what he's saying. This was more than I ever imagined would be possible. It's utopic, I think. The second thing that he says, there might be a better word to put over it than this, but this is the word that I've chosen, is sacred. See verse 12. You are a garden, and a garden that's exotic, and it's got all these things in it, but you are a garden that's locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. We have locked gardens in this country. Notting Hill's got a few locked gardens in it, if you've seen that film. In London, they have locked gardens. Maybe they have a few up north and all. Locked gardens where you just a few people can get into them, a few people got access with the keys. Beautiful things, secret gardens. That's how he describes their lovemaking. He says, you have kept this for me. They followed the wisdom of the book, you should say. Don't arouse love until it so desires. But look what's happened now. Verse 16. They've waited and they've waited and they've waited and they've waited. Awake, north wind. Come, south wind. Blow on my garden that its fragrance might spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. This moment is so hard for us to conceive of, I think. You'd read the first bit and you'd think, it's sensuous and it seems like it's open and it's there for everybody to see and at the same time, it is all that, but it isn't. It's sacred and it's private and it's just, just for them. It's beautiful. It's the best consummation of a marriage you can ever imagine. I think that's what the author is saying here. Sacred, beautiful explosion. And it's enhanced by their honoring and anticipating each other. I couldn't think, I couldn't help but think, as, I'd, as I had to think about how I would ex- explain this perfect moment of sex, of consumption, about how, given how perfect it is, or it can be how imperfect it can be so often. Couldn't help but think, about that. Um, one of the world's greatest sex symbols, Marilyn Monroe said just before she died, never really liked sex. I don't think I ever will. It just seems 
the opposite of love. And you kind of go, how does that, how does this great creation that we're part of and this beautiful person that is Marilyn Monroe and all the success she has end up as sad as that? And yet we kind of know that it does, it can. For some people, the emptiness of what it can be and the thought of what it should or could be points people to something greater. Did some very, un, two unlikely characters came together in my studies, St. Augustine and Russell Brand. You would think, how do these two people ever come together? But they do. Their words, and I don't know how far apart that they lived, I probably should have done a bit more research. Their words, how they reflected on their promiscuity is almost identical. It's almost the same same language, both of these people, St. Augustine and Russell Brand, reflect on it and go, it was just a stream of emptiness. Let me find it. An ongoing seam of loneliness is what Russell Brand said, which is almost the exact same as what St. Augustine had said. That the more he tried to fill up, the more he realized in his pursuit of it and not finding it, and been able to have as much of it almost as he would wanted, that there must be something bigger out there. That was the conclusion. That was the end of it for him. Don't know if it might bore you on other things, but on this subject, he's incredibly interested in Russell Brand. Bruno Mars, my unlikely aid, probably puts it more concisely than anybody else, almost poetically. I've never had much faith in miracles. Never had much faith in love or miracles. Never want to put my heart on the line. But swimming in your waters is something spiritual. I'm born again every time you spend the night. Because your sex takes me to paradise. And then this awesome refrain just blew me away. Don't know how much he knows about this, Bruno Mars. Because it makes me feel like I've been locked out of heaven for too long. As I read that, I'm like, are you kidding, Bruno Mars? I don't think this text just leaves us with this couple's perfect wedding night. I think it points us, it asks us to think that it might possibly mean something more. See 5 verse 1, look at the promises. Think about the Bible story. Think about the way that God breathes out his word. I asked you to think at the start that God speaks to us through our fidelity and through our infidelity, that this is a theme that runs right the way through the book. Chapter 5, verse 1. I've come into my garden, my sister, my bride, gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb, my honey, and I have drunk my wine and my milk. Just for a second, you stop and pause, and you think about the language that he's choosing to use there as he describes this utopic experience. Abundant milk, abundant honey. What is he talking about? Is it just a chance? Is he just chanced on these words? Can you remember from Sunday school classes, if you were somebody that went to Sunday school classes or your early readings of the Bible, what the promised land was going to promise, what it was going to be like? It was going to be full of milk and honey. God's people hanging on for a place that was full of of milk and honey. Is this the place? Is this the place? We've wandered around for long enough. Is this the place? Is this the place? Always hoping for that. And here it is. It's part of the fulfillment. It's a garden. 
the imagery of a garden, a garden that should be perfect, like a perfect place. You wouldn't want to ruin this garden, would you? What is it pointing to? Is it just me? A perfect garden, Garden of Eden that just shouldn't be ruined. You're going to really regret that if you do that. Chapter 4, verse 15. You're a garden, not just a garden, you're a garden fountain, a well flowing, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. Could just be coincidence. Couldn't help but think of the woman at the well when I read through this, struggling. But if you know the story, John 4, of the woman at the well who just spent a life messing up with guys. Jesus meets her and he gives her a drink that means she's never, ever going to thirst again. Answers all of her questions. We're told that heaven, in some ways, heaven or even our place in God's kingdom right now, in a sense, is like somewhere that means we will never, ever thirst again. I don't know how directly we can tie all this together. But I don't feel like I'm taking liberties with this word when I say that our most intimate desires, our needs, wherever we are down this path with intimacy, because we are God's creation, because we are created at the start to bear his image, no matter where we go, we can't get away from that. And whether we're aching, whether we've messed up, whether we're hoping for more, we're caused to think about our God and his eternal promises in these moments. I want to read, as I close, the words of what is my favorite hymn that just sums up for us the scene um, in heaven where, against all the odds, as we think about our fidelity and infidelity, we stand undeservedly before a holy God with white robes on. That's not just a dress code. That represents our righteousness. And it tells us, if you read in Revelation, that Jesus, we didn't get them, we don't pick through a wardrobe when we get there, Jesus puts them on us as we submit to him and as we bow to him and as we changed by him. And this hymn, I'm just going to read through and then the band are going to come up and play our last song. It's just a picture. It's not all the hymn, it's just a few selected verses. Christ, he is the fountain. The hymn's called Emmanuel's Land. I don't know if any of you will know it. It's a great hymn. Christ, he is the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love. The streams on earth are tasted more deep I'll drink above. There to an ocean's fullness, his mercy does expand. And glory, glory dwells in Emmanuel's land. Oh, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He brings a poor, vile sinner into his house of wine. I stand upon his merit. I know no other stand not even where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he gives, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land.